Hi, my name is Nelson Bennett, and this is the Merovingian Podcast. Last week, we discussed the rise of Clovis, king of the Franks, and, eventually, the most powerful man in Gaul. We left him enthroned in Paris, basking in the glory of his victory at Vouliers. This week, we're going to rewind back to the beginning of his reign and take a more critical look at his legacy in episode 5, Clovis the Snake. Why a snake, you might reasonably ask. Based on what you told me last week, he might be a little brutal, maybe a little tricky, but a snake? That seems a little harsh, Nelson. Well, I believe once we get through the material for this episode, you will agree with me that Clovis was more than slimy, manipulative, and cruel enough to qualify for this title. But beyond just talking about some of the dodgier things he did that we skimmed over last week, this episode will also delve into some historical analysis. We will re-examine some of the events and stories from Gregory of Tours' narrative and delve deeper to try to find a different view and, potentially, a more accurate one. Let me start this process with a simple question. If Clovis came to the throne in 481 AD and didn't move against Syagrius till 486, what was he doing for those five years? They are completely glossed over in Gregory's narrative, and very little is known about them at all. But there are several educated guesses we can make that begin to undermine the picture of a strong and unchallenged leader. Gregory likes to present Clovis' campaigns as one single event, where Clovis sets out, wins a decisive battle, and returns, having subdued the enemy, and they never bother him again. This approach certainly helps keep his narrative clear, and makes Clovis seem almost divinely blessed with success, but has been largely questioned by historians. The idea of Clovis winning a battle, then the war being over, is now seen as Gregory taking artistic license. It is most likely that these conflicts took place over several years, with raiding and counter-raiding, and a series of battles slowly shifting the scales of war, one way or the other. This is the first explanation for the five missing years. It is fairly likely Clovis was cutting his teeth against the tribes Gregory records him as defeating in the 490s, mostly the Alamanni and the Thuringians. Our old friend Edward James also points out that Clovis's victory over these groups does not seem to be as complete as Gregory would like us to believe, with the Thuringians having to be conquered again by Clovis's sons. These Germanic tribes weren't centralized Roman states, which might collapse after a single decisive victory. They were decentralized, loose tribal alliances, which were ruled by several independent kings and chiefs, much like the Franks themselves. Such a group was harder to subdue, and doing so took a lot longer. The other option for these five missing years has to do with the succession. Gregory, again, gives very little time to this, implying that it was no problem whatsoever. But since we know about Childeric's issues with maintaining his rule, and we have five missing years after his 15-year-old son comes to the throne, we can piece together some things. If Gregory had recorded succession disputes, it would have undermined Clovis's legitimacy, and thus the legitimacy of the entire Merovingian dynasty. Also, Gregory was writing a hundred years after these events, so the people recounting them for him would have had no real reason to point out such things since they came from the winning side. Thus it is also possible Gregory simply didn't know of any issues. But it is certainly suspicious 
that Clovis ascended to the throne with absolutely no mention of problems. And we are well within our rights to insinuate that Clovis might have spent at least part of those five years shoring up support for his regime amongst the salient Franks. Most likely both of these things were happening at the same time, and Clovis was unable to move against Syagrius as he was busy sorting out these issues at home. Clovis's sons would undertake far more effective campaigns, coming closer to subduing whole nations in a single campaign, but they had several advantages. First, there were several of them who could move independently. Second, they were mostly attacking more settled and sometimes partially subdued tribes. And third, they were operating with all the resources Clovis had built up over his 30-year reign. At the beginning of his reign, Clovis was still navigating the choppy water of power politics along the Rhine, and would not have been able to act as decisively, or with such overwhelming force, as his sons later would. Thus, the campaigns Gregory records are largely misleading. Most likely the years Gregory records are the years of significant victories, or maybe some kind of victorious peace settlement that marks an end to major hostilities. Clovis certainly did campaign against these groups, but not as effectively or efficiently as we have been led to believe. Now, I know I promised to talk about the war with the Burgundians again, but before we get into that, we have to talk quickly, once again, about the Vase of Soissons. Last week, we talked about what Gregory wanted the reader to get from the story, a dual picture of Clovis as a pious and respected leader, and a brutal warlord. This week, I would be amiss if I didn't point out the key detail historians can glean from this story. There has, and continues to be, much discussion around the nature of Frankish kingship. Why were some recorded as kings, or regnes, while others are simply chiefs? How did the kings rule, and where did their authority come from? Some of these questions we may never know the answers to for sure, but, like always, there are clues that help us make some educated guesses. The presence of Roman gear in Childeric's tomb, which we talked about in episode 2, is complemented by Gregory's recording of Clovis's use of Roman symbols and titles. This evidence suggests to us that the early Merovingians relied much more heavily on Roman symbolism to legitimize their rule than previously assumed. This makes a lot of sense. It would be odd if Clovis emerged out of his conquests with a fully developed social and cultural basis for his rule. Basing himself on what had come before is only logical. But the story of the Vase of Soissons shows us the other side of Clovis's rule. Later Roman emperors were more autocratic, as we have discussed before, but they were still rooted in Roman ideas of rulership. Their positions were essentially a collection of legal powers, and the famous Roman legalism still permeated their day-to-day -day life, even if they operated with a bit less constraints than their predecessors. The story of the Vase of Soissons shows us a significant break in this tradition. Clovis is obviously bound by some kind of tradition, as he has to share his loot with his men. This is not strange. At this early point, Clovis loosely resembles a leader of a warband, and most groups like this have traditions of splitting loot. But, when a dispute arises, there is no mention of precedent, no mention of laws that govern how loot is meant to be divided. If the Franks truly were the successors to Rome, they would have some complicated legal procedure to implement, and no doubt, 
endless core challenges to the outcome. Instead, Clovis simply splits the man's head open with an axe. This action lays bare the naked military autocracy of the Merovingian kings. There is no legal basis for his action, no precedent he can point to. Here, might makes right. It will take several generations for this to change, with Clovis's immediate heirs operating with the same mixture of loose tradition and brutality. This brings us to the Burgundian War. There is no real legal basis for this war. This is not some kind of formalized succession dispute, or a traditional raid and counter-raid. It is a naked act of aggression by a king who saw weakness in his rival. Clovis has a bond with Godgesil, thanks to his marriage with Clothild, but this is not all that important, really. The way he abandons Godgesil after the campaign shows that theirs was very much an alliance of convenience. Clovis was there to get what he wanted, nothing else. If they had succeeded in dethroning Gundabad, there is no real guarantee Clovis would have even let Godgesil keep the throne. As we will see later in this episode, Clovis has no trouble tricking and lying allies and friends out of their realms. So, now the question we left last week. Why did Clovis accept such lenient terms with Gundabad when Gregory insists that he had him cornered in Avignon? Well, there are several moving parts to this situation. Edward James insists that the war between the Visigoths and Franks was ongoing throughout this period, and that the Burgundians under Gundabad later assisted the Franks in Clovis's successful southern campaign. This military assistance against the other great power in Gaul may well have been part of the agreement at Avignon, with Gundabad only offering some tribute to sweeten the deal. There is also the siege itself. Clovis and his Franks had proven effective at fighting battles and subduing tribes, but thus far we have little evidence of them taking large, well-fortified cities. Also, the story of Iridius working for Gundabad to convince Clovis to leave might not be entirely fiction. While it makes very little sense in the form Gregory offers, it may cover a deeper story where Gundabad sent agents into the encamped Frankish force to sow dissent and weaken Clovis's position until the Merovingian king was forced to negotiate. Remember, this is still before Clovis's great victory at Vouliers and before his consolidation of power amongst the Franks. At this point, his army was likely still a coalition of Frankish forces, held together by his personal charisma and promises of loot. Dying of disease and boredom, outside a well-fortified city, far from their homes along the Rhine, was likely a grim prospect for these Frankish warriors. The threat of his army disintegrating would have been a large push for Clovis to negotiate, and might explain his sudden decision to leave. There is also the extent of his victory up until that point. He had defeated Gundabad's army and trapped the king in Avignon, but that does not mean the Burgundians were defeated, as his son Theuderic's later campaign after Vouliers and Godgesil's own actions in this campaign show, these states were more than able to raise and support multiple armies with differing objectives. We have no evidence of the Franks being threatened by a Burgundian army while Clovis was tied up in his siege, but the departure of Godgesil is odd. Why would he move to Vienne while his brother was still alive and well behind the walls of Avignon? 
Perhaps he was meant to seize control of the rest of the realm while Clovis occupied Gundabad. This would be a smart plan, as it would ensure Godgasil's throne and keep Clovis free from any relief force or threat to the Frankish lands, while he was stuck outside Avignon. Yet we can ascertain that Godgasil was perhaps not the most popular or capable ruler. How easily he was brushed aside by Gundabad earlier, then defeated and killed after Clovis leaves, is certainly evidence that the majority of the Burgundians didn't support him. Perhaps, despite all the advantages Clovis had given, Godgasil was unable to unite the Burgundians and Clovis felt threatened, encouraging him to make a deal with Gundabad and leave the ineffective Godgasil to his fate. As you can see, much of our work as historians in this period relies on theories and educated guesswork. We'll never know for sure why Clovis left Gundabad to reassert control. But we can use the evidence we have to make some strong guesses and arguments. We will be applying this mixed approach of analysing the sources we have, making educated guesses, and generally trying to read between the lines of history again and again in this series. It is the best way to approach the unreliable and limited sources we have. So, with the thorny issue of the Burgundian War dealt with, we are relatively free to move into the last years of Clovis's reign. The war with the Visigoths may have played out over a longer period than Gregory would like us to believe, but Clovis's victory at Vouliers and the aftermath is not really in question. This brings us to Clovis on the throne in Paris. What will he do with the last few years of his reign? Live peacefully and enjoy his hard-won power, wealth and prestige? No, I think we all know at this point that he is not capable of being so chill, even in his old age. Instead, Clovis is going to reveal a decidedly inglorious and ignoble side to his personality. This is really where we see the snake reveal itself. One by one, Clovis is going to steal power from the other Frankish kings and chiefs, men who have fought with him and supported his rise to power for nearly three decades at this point. His actions are up there with the most slimy and manipulative people in history. Let's take a look. First up is Sigebert the Lame. Sigebert earned his unfortunate moniker after being injured fighting alongside Clovis at the Battle of Tolbiac against the Alamanni. That bond won't protect him from the power-hungry Merovingian though, and Clovis doesn't even have to leave Paris for this one. He writes to Sigebert's son, pointing out that his father is old and lame, and promising to support him and offer his alliance if the son kills Sigebert and seizes the throne for himself. The support of the most powerful man in Gaul and a guarantee of his alliance was an offer too good to refuse, and Sigebert is murdered in cold blood while resting under a tree after taking a peaceful walk through the forest. His son then sends word to Clovis that his assassins have done their job and offers Clovis first pick from his father's treasury. Clovis sends envoys, congratulating the son on his actions and asking to see the treasure room. He takes them to a coffer filled with gold coins, which his father would likely have won on campaign with Clovis. The envoys ask him to plunge his hand to the bottom and tell them how deep the coffer goes. As he does, one of Clovis's men raises his axe and splits his head open over the treasure. 
Thus, the son received the same end as the father, cold-blooded murder at the hands of men he trusted. Clovis then gets off his gilded rear and makes the journey to Cologne, where all of this has been taking place. Once at the city, he makes a speech to the inhabitants, telling them that the son killed his father and was then killed by some stranger. He refuses any blame and claims he would have never have hurt a fellow king. But, since they have been put in this unfortunate position without a king, he will offer them his protection and rule. How nice of him. Next up is Chiraric, another king of the Salian Franks. According to Gregory, Chiraric had committed the unforgivable sin of remaining neutral in the conflict between Syagrius and Clovis, and for this, he definitely deserved death. Never mind that Clovis was not his lord, and he had no duty to support him. He should have seen into the future and known that Clovis would come out on top, and shown the proper respect for the position Clovis had yet to attain. For this slight, Clovis invades in a fury and captures both Chiraric and his son. He cut their long hair, the symbol of Frankish kings, and made Chiraric a priest and his son a deacon. Chiraric is recorded as bursting into tears at this abject humiliation, but it was his son that doomed them. The son is recorded as saying, quote, These leaves have been cut from wood which is still green and not lacking sap. They will soon grow again and be larger than ever, and may the man who has done this deed perish equally quickly. When Clovis was warned of this threat, we can imagine him shrugging, saying, well, okay then, and then calmly ordering both of their heads cut off. After this, he sees their treasure and their lands, just like he had with Sigebert's. Last up in Gregory's narrative is Ragnachar. You may remember Ragnachar from his support for Clovis's campaign against Syagrius. So, what excuse will Clovis use this time? Well, he's going to engage in some particularly sneaky behaviour this time. Gregory tells us that Ragnachar, along with his advisor Pharaoh, were serial adulterers and couldn't keep their hands off other men's wives. Now, this is not that strange for kings in this period, or any period honestly, but it is also worth noting that the Franks were not monogamous at this point. In fact, most historians believe they were likely polygamous throughout most of the Merovingian period. Gregory likes to downplay this, however, and this picture of a hot-blooded, lustful barbarian Ragnachar contrasts too well with the cold and calculating, increasingly Romanesque Clovis to really be believable. Gregory notes that it is the king's behaviour that encouraged his ludes, or personal guard, to take Clovis's bribes, but let's judge that for ourselves. Clovis gives the ludes golden armbands and sword belts, he then invades Ragnachar's realm and defeats his army on the battlefield. Ragnachar flees, but is betrayed by the men Clovis had bribed and handed over along with his brother, Rikar. Clovis arrives and sneers at Ragnachar, saying, quote, Why have you disgraced our Frankish people by allowing yourself to be bound? It would be better for you if you had died in battle. He then raises his axe and splits Ragnachar's skull open. Turning to Rikar, now the heir to his brother's realm, Ragnachar's blood still dripping from his axe, he says, quote, 
If you had stood by your brother, he would not have been bound in this way. He then kills Rikar with the same axe. After this, he moves to seize Ragnachar's treasure and lands, but is soon confronted by the former king's Ludes, who have discovered a nasty secret. They have been wearing the golden armbands and sword belts Clovis gave them, and have discovered that they are not actually gold, but bronze, and only disguised to look like gold. When they began to complain about being cheated, Clovis says, This is the sort of gold which a man can expect when he deliberately lures a lord to their death. He then adds that they are lucky to be escaping with their lives, and threatens to torture them all to death, at which point they apparently begged for forgiveness. This last passage in Gregory is particularly revealing. Ragnachar and Clovis were not only old allies, they were also apparently related through Clovis's mother, Bessina. Clovis, however, shows no reluctance in killing him with his own hands. What he said to Rikar is also odd, and it seems to imply that he either abandoned his brother Ragnachar or betrayed him at the battle. Given Clovis's practice with Gundabad and Godgazil, it is not a stretch to imagine he had sown division between Ragnachar and Rikar, then killed Rikar to tie up loose ends. As I said last week, Clovis hates loose ends. The false bribery is also such a slimy move, I don't even know what to say about it. Clovis was more than rich enough at this point to afford such a bribe. To offer it, then give a self-righteous speech after the gifts proved to be a lie is just gross. There's no other way to say it. After this, Clovis has one last trick up his sleeve. According to Gregory, he had hunted down all the other claimants to power amongst the Franks, implying that he killed more than just the major ones we have discussed today. It seems he really was thorough, as after his death only one major claimant will emerge to challenge Merovingian power, despite the myriad of kings and chiefs who ruled during his rise. For his last trick though, Clovis summons a general assembly and spoke out, saying, How sad a thing it is that I live among strangers like some solitary pilgrim, and that I have none of my own relations left to help me when disaster threatens. Gregory tells us that this was a trick to make any surviving claimants, of which there were none, reveal themselves, thinking he felt remorse and wanted their support. Clovis, however, seems incapable of remorse. He did some truly awful things in his time, even by the standards of the day. Lying, cheating, even turning father against son and brother against brother. All in the pursuit of more power and more wealth. The Clovis we see through these stories is likely closer to the real one than the cleaned up version Gregory insists on presenting. I have largely removed the arguments and language Gregory used to try to justify Clovis' cold and methodical killing of his kingly brethren. As it is so obviously justifications, it is not useful for us this week. In the future, I plan to do an episode on Gregory and his histories, but we will likely leave that until he emerges himself as a major political figure during the rule of Clovis's grandchildren. So... Who was Clovis? Was he a great and noble king? Was he a lying, manipulative murderer? 
Well, you can decide for yourselves. Personally, I think he was a bit of both. Kings in this period were power-hungry and largely free of restraining social norms. Clovis may be the first, but he certainly won't be the last Merovingian king to act in contradictory ways. In analysing the evidence we have of these people, we are often left with the impression that they are far more complicated than the simple depictions we are often given. Clovis was a consequential ruler and a harsh and tough man, but it is always worth remembering that he, and everyone else in these stories, were real people and contained multitudes. Either way, seeing the nastier side to Clovis prepares us for meeting his bloody and cruel sons. Next week, we will see how these four brothers ruled, and how they eventually whistled themselves back down to one old man, ruling Gaul all by himself, soaked in the blood of his friends and relatives. See you then.